Ag Nation Daily. You know, again, we go back to, to how long we've used this same chemistry over and over again, and it seems to be a treadmill of, of falling into the same traps, I guess, if you will, and that we just use the chemistry until we use it up and it no longer works. Listeners, welcome back to the podcast. April 5th, Wednesday, Ag News Daily Podcast. Going to bring a lot of headlines today. Quite a bit of news this morning, Delaney. There certainly is, Tanner, and I'm sure you're going to kick it off with weather. <laughs> I can let you run with it, but uh, you're right. There's still excitement here in the northern portion of the United States. Of course, we had a lot of severe weather roll through last night. There was tornadoes in Marion County, Iowa. I didn't catch any other tornado reports uh, during my search this morning, but we still have North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota friends that are in winter warnings. South Dakota and North Dakota have blizzard warnings that could bring an extra two inches of snow on top of what they got yesterday. Minnesota could see freezing drizzle as well as parts of Wisconsin. So uh, still not out of the winter season yet, it feels like, Delaney. No, yesterday was a cold walking day and we got pretty large hail here, Tanner, just east of Des Moines, probably about maybe a little smaller than a golf ball size, but it was a little eerie to be at home when it's pounding on the roof. Yeah, no kidding. That's certainly one of those where you want to make sure your vehicles are inside and protected uh, because that could do quite a bit of damage. That certainly could, Tanner, but hopping into our first non-weather related piece of news here. Got another lawsuit going on related to WOTUS, this time in the state of Kentucky, where a federal judge has tossed out the state's lawsuit against the Biden administration and its waters of the U.S. rule. Finding in a ruling that was published on Monday that the state of Kentucky and other business interveners do not have a standing to challenge. So there's lots of legal discourse that's stated, but Essentially, Tanner, when it gets down to it, they said there is no standing. Judges can't just pull cases off the shelf because the policy is compelling. And they said specifically to prove standing, parties to the lawsuit have to show that there is one, an injury in fact, and two, that it is traceable and redressable, according to the judge's ruling. And they also said in addition to establish what they call ripeness for an injunction in a case, a plaintiff has to show basically actual present harm or significant possibility of future harm. And Kentucky was not able to do that to the federal judge. And that is why the case has now been tossed out. So we've been seeing a lot of mixed bags here as far as those WOTUS cases go, some standing and some getting tossed out, such as this one. Yeah, that's interesting to see how perspective is taking place. But Successful Reforming is reporting today about a water case that does have significant damage and resulted in a fine for a couple of Iowa farmers. Contaminated water from a runoff from fertilizer containment in an eastern Iowa farm has resulted in a fine and order to pay from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Looks like the water runoff from this acreage that stored ammonia and grain did feed into groundwater tile that fed into a holding pond that then fed into a small creek, which killed nearly 50,000 small fish and animals. Uh, Patrick and Tracy Hammes uh, of Eastern Iowa were recently fined $10,000 in order to pay nearly a $12,000 fish kill investigation bill up by Cogden, Iowa. The discovery was made when another neighbor 
wanted to reconstruct the dam next to that pond had to breach that dam, which caused the water to run off more quickly into the stream, which resulted in a larger amount of fish kill. There was more than 490 parts per million of ammonia and nitrogen in the water, whereas three parts per million Delaney is typically unsafe for aquatic life. So that caused quite a bit of damage. And there was an estimated almost 51,000 fish dead, along with frog tadpoles, leeches, and worms over a six mile stretch of dry creek in iowa so they noticed there that it was void of any living aquatic life which is a pretty severe statement it certainly is and my first thought when i hear stories like that is that the fish are going to be mutated like you hear in sci-fi movies uh-huh. Uh-huh. that you know i could totally see that either they would glow or actually grow feet <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Well, moving on here, Tanner, the State Board of Iowa rejected nearly one and a half million dollars of grain loss claims on Monday, which were from farmers who sold grain to a now defunct soybean dealer. This represents about 41 percent of the losses that farmers and others sought to recoup in the wake of Global Processing Inc.'s bankruptcy last year. And I have to admit, I don't remember this story, Tanner. I don't know about you. I don't. Yeah, I'm trying to rack my brain as well. I don't remember this either. I might have touched. I couldn't remember if I had touched on one about this where producers were concerned about getting checks. But I don't know if it was specific to this this topic. Yeah, I was I was scratching my brain a little bit, too. But the backstory here is that several soybean producers made claims on grain sales that happened more than six months before the state suspended Global's grain dealer and warehouse license, which happened in October of 2022. And by law, those deliveries need to happen on or before April 24th of 2022 to be eligible. So the board, the Iowa Grain Indemnity Fund Board, which was created back in the 1980s during the farm crisis, oversees operation of a state fund that will pay farmers up to 90% of their losses or $300,000 when they aren't compensated by a grain dealer or aren't able to retake their stored grain from those warehouses for whatever reason. But the board is claiming that farmers and processors didn't get their deliveries made by April 24th. And so now about one and a half million dollars of grain losses um, are not going to be recouped here by some of those farmers. Yikes. Yeah, that's not the way we anticipated that going. If that's the same story that we reported on, we were hopeful Mm -hmm. that we would see the farmers made whole. Uh, We also are hopeful that Minnesota can protect its borders from the Canadian super pigs. Had you seen that headline? Oh, no. You know what? It's been a story that I've watched over the last couple of years. Yeah. So Canada has super pigs, which is obviously a a crossbreed between a domesticated pig and wild boar. The Canadian super pigs are now threatening the state. Uh, Canada has noticed pigs roaming within 40 miles of the Minnesota border. But the problem is, is that Minnesota has a very small budget and really no resources dedicated to funding for wild pig removal or monitoring. The federal money dedicated to preventing feral hogs in Minnesota was at $68,000 annually in 2017, but for the current fiscal year is down to only 25,000. The population of these feral swine have long occupied the territory of Manitoba. 
nearly uh, 1,900 counties in 35 states had wild hogs in them throughout the rest of the U.S., but Minnesota has so far not had a significant impact. Wild pigs had never established a colony in Minnesota yet, but nearby states aren't so lucky. We've got some here in uh, Iowa, apparently. There are larger areas of effectiveness in North Dakota, Indiana, Kansas, Missouri, Michigan, and of course, a lot of our states down south. But the problem we have, Delaney, is pigs have large litters. So there is a relatively short period of time for these herds to expand. So it's inevitable that our friends in Minnesota are going to have to get a program put together to start protecting their border from pigs crossing over. Yeah. You know what? I went to Iowa Swine Days conference last year and they talked about this very topic. Uh, there was a Canadian professor who was doing research on this on this subject. So it was, it's really fascinating, actually, I think. Yeah. And it's just a matter of how destructive they are. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, they can transmit disease, but there's more concern about the destruction because of the rooting nature mm -hmm. and how they destroy fields of corn when they forage. Uh, so, yes, it's a, it's quite a big deal. It is. And it's quite an interesting story. Not certainly ideal with, to, not certainly uh, ideal to deal with. That's a tongue twister if you live up in the northern parts of the of the country there. But nonetheless, Stan, we're moving right along here. All average retail fertilizer prices were down for the last month or were down in the fourth full week of the last month of March according to the DTN Survey Fertilizer Trends Analyzer. However, after weeks of prices for several fertilizer prices being lower, only one fertilizer, which was anhydrous, was substantially lower, which DTN defines as a move greater than 5%. So anhydrous there was leading the way. Nitrogen fertilizer was also about 5% lower compared to last month. And so we're continuing to kind of see the trend here Tanner, for 2023, bee fertilizer prices are moving in the right direction here for producers. That's good. That's the right way for the trend to be headed. Unfortunately, there's a trend in Missouri that our cattle producer listeners are dealing with that isn't so great, and that is the Asian longhorn tick. There is not a significant infestation yet, but it has now been found as far north as Lynn County. So the College of Veterinary Medicine coming out of University of Missouri has researchers stating that that Lynn County pasture saw the tick last summer. They also saw the tick near Springfield in June of 2021. It has now been found in 17 states since 2019. And the reason this provides significant concern is that when hundreds of ticks connect themselves to a single animal, they can cause significant blood loss. But the biggest issue, Delaney, is the fact that when these ticks are in an friendly environment, a female can produce up to 2,000 eggs at one time, which causes the expansion possibilities to be rapid. And of course, the last item is ticks can transmit, transmit parasites. So there are several different parasites, including ones that destroy red blood cells, create jaundice, even uh, lead to spontaneous abortions. That's why cow-calf producers in Missouri are doing a lot to try to identify areas and environments in which are friendly to ticks and trying to maintain their pastures to where this does not become an issue. Of course, producers can reduce their risk by keeping their cattle out of wooded areas. They can clear weeds and brush regularly. They can also spray for the insects. 
and do what they can to the best to manage their herd because there's really not an antidote. There's not uh, an approved drug or an approved way of treating the cow after they've been exposed to the Asian longhorn tick. So another threat to ag producers, it seems like every year there's a new issue for our listeners to deal with as far as they manage their livestock and their crops. Well, Xander, speaking of managing crops, I think the only piece of news I have left today is uh, talking about commodity markets and how producers are managing their risk there. What other news do you have for today? Oh, just a quick headline reminder that uh, the corn rootworm beetle is continuing to be a problem. A lot of industry research and university researchers are pointing out that 2023 could be a prime area of influence for the rootworm beetle. They've got beetle traps last summer to help develop the forecast for 2023. And they are stating now that there may be as many as 12 states with this issue. The problem that they're seeing is that BT corn is no longer as effective as it was to begin with. So they're gonna encourage early and often scouting to see if we can take care of these uh, insects before the infestations get too bad. Of course, we're looking at Iowa, the northern parts of Illinois, parts of Minnesota and Wisconsin, a little bit of Nebraska as the area of influence. But again, it spreads across 12 states. That's the last piece I have for today. Fantastic, Tanner. Well, let's take a look here at where the overnight markets finished as we head into the opening session here on this Wednesday morning. And quick reminder to our listeners, Friday, we're closed here on the podcast, but also in the commodity markets for Good Friday, Tanner. So we'll see markets close on Thursday and won't reopen again until Sunday night trading. In the meantime, with this holiday shortened week, May corn here today closed six cents lower in the overnight. We'll open at 647 and three quarters. December new crop corn shed three and three quarters cents in the overnight to open at 556 and a quarter. May soybeans in the overnight down six pennies will open at 1511 and a half. The November soybean contract will open at 1309 this morning, down 11 cents in the overnight markets. May hard red winter wheat also down pretty substantially here in the overnights. 15 and three quarters cents lower to open at 8.56 and three quarters. Quick refresher on where livestock closed yesterday and will reopen here today. June live cattle down a dollar will open at a buck 60.22. May feeder cattle down 87 and a half cents to open at 202.27. And May lean hogs will open here this morning down $2.20 at 82.17 and a half. Tanner, we are kicking it over to a conversation you had today with a professor at the University of Arkansas to talk about weed control as we head into planting season. Well, listeners, we just talked a lot of headlines around insect pressure and what we could be looking at this growing season. So now it's my pleasure to have Dr. Tom Barber, Extension Wheat Scientist for the University of Arkansas's Division of Ag here to talk about weed pressure. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Barber. Uh, Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So let's first start off, give our listeners a little bit about who you are and uh, what you're doing for the Extension office. Well, I'm an extension weed scientist with the University of Arkansas. Uh, I've been with the U of A for, this will be my 16th season, I think, uh, with them. And so I've worked as a cotton specialist and an extension weed scientist. But currently we do 
applied weed control research uh, to make recommendations in corn, cotton, grain, sorghum, soybean, and rice. So, and peanuts, the left out peanuts. So that's what we're working with right now. That's great. And I bet the overarching results that you're seeing is some increased resistance to the chemicals that we use to try and maintain and control our weeds, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a problem nationwide or nationally. And and a lot of it has to do with we just haven't had any new chemistry in the last 30 years, really, or more now. Uh, so we're we're dealing with the same old herbicides to to control these weeds and the weeds have had a long uh, exposure time, if you will, uh, to these same herbicides that we're using today. So as you are working with growers and trying to, to provide the best advice, how do we go about leading up to this growing season? And for some of our listeners have already started planting about facing the resistance coming at us this year. Well, I think it's important to look at field history and that's what we tell you know, our farmers and consultants uh, down here in the Mid-South and in Arkansas, you know, it's important to look at your field history. What was the problem last year? You know, what are programs that work versus didn't work? As, uh, you know, these resistant populations, they're not in every single field in every county. They're they're more widespread than that, but but they are more consistent in a general area. So it it's really important to get it back to a field-based recommendation. And if and if you're not, you know, walking or looking at each field, taking good notes for the next year, I mean, I think that's an important practice that definitely needs to uh, to to start to to really know how to manage these uh, trouble populations. So one of the articles that we had come across that you helped contribute to, you talked a lot about diversification and trying to come at attacking these weeds from various different chemistry sides of things. Can you expand upon that for our listeners? Well, absolutely. And so that's that's been a recommendation of ours uh, for several years now. And again, it goes back to mainly Palmer amaranth. Uh, we have a tremendous problem with Palmer amaranth in every uh, row crop that we grow uh, here in Arkansas. And it just continues to increase every year. I guess it just means that... Uh, we suck as weed scientists. Maybe we need some more weed scientists to, to come up with different ideas. But, you know, again, we go back to, to how long we've used this same chemistry over and over again. And it seems to be a treadmill of, of falling into the same traps, I guess, if you will, and that we just use the chemistry until we use it up and it no longer works. And so by diversification, we're, we're bringing a lot of other facets into this weed control system. And when we talk about uh, cover crops. You know, we talk about tillage. Uh, we talk about planting dates, row configurations, uh, you know, crop rotation, things that we can bring onto the farm level that help us reduce the number of seed that go back to the soil seed bank. And with Palmer Amaranth, it's all uh, a numbers game. You know, my predecessor, Dr. Ken Smith, used to say that all the time. It's all a numbers game with pigweed because we know one pigweed plant can produce. I mean, they've documented over a million seed if it's by itself and, you know, healthy, fertilized, et cetera. But realistically, in a in field competition, 100,000 seeds per plant is not out of the question. And so it, it goes back to the numbers, how much of those seed we're putting back into the seed bank. And from some long-term studies that we've been doing this last several years, 
in cotton and soybean, we found that the more we can add uh, above and beyond chemicals. So we're keeping the chemistry in the field. It's not like we're putting the herbicides back on the shelf. We're doing these things in addition to. And so, you know, we're these cultural practices, mechanical practices uh, to help improve weed control. All we're doing is we're reducing the numbers of pigweed plants that we have to battle during the season. And at the end of the year, when we talk about things like zero tolerance, roguing the remaining pigweed uh, plants, or some of the new technology that's that's uh, going to be available in the market very soon with these seed destructors uh, on combines and a crop like soybeans, if we can destroy the seed that is produced on those plants at the end of the year, anything that we can do to reduce that seed going back into the soil seed bank uh, puts us ahead the next year. Yeah, because that's something you talked about in that article I was reflecting upon is it's a zero-sum game because even a 5% weed escapage rate is still going to be devastating to the future when you talk about seeds in that seed bank. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so, so as we put a lot of this, and it's not just, you know, we talk a lot about Palmer amaranth or pigweed that we call it. But it's not just about that weed. It, it also helps all these other weeds in addition to that one. Uh, that one just gets all the attention. And that, you know, quite honestly, in our corn, soybean, and cotton crops, that one is the one that has come to the top in, as, in terms of, uh, you know, a make-or-break season and weed control for us. And so we put a lot of focus and energy on that one specific weed. So as we continue to have listeners that are focusing on profitability, of course, it's we state that every growing season is more important than the last as it focuses on maintaining margin. How do you suggest our listeners go about this without breaking the bank to try and maintain their weeds? Well, for us, and, and again, this is based on our populations of Palmer Amaranth that we have in the state. We have some counties that have seven-way resistance. That doesn't leave us a lot of chemistry on the table to play with, okay? And then when we talk about barnyard grass, we're you know we're the largest rice producing state in the U.S. Rice is a big crop for us. Barnyard grass, a lot of populations have resistance built up to several different chemistries um, in in our rice production. And so, regardless of the crop that we talk about, you know, when we talk about herbicide recommendations, we're never just putting one out there. Number one, we recommend residuals. And we, you know, it it costs a lot of money on the front. We get crop injury. Our growers still don't like to use residuals on every acre uh, because we can injure the crop. We spend a lot of money up front. You know, if we have to replant, there's some issues there if we've already put a herbicide down. But if we don't use these residual herbicides to get ahead of the game, uh, we'll never catch up. And that's with barnyard grass and our rice crop. Or even in some of our soybean and cotton crops now, or Palmer pigweed or Palmer amaranth, uh, our pigweed populations in our upland crops. And so we recommend two residuals up front and that are effective. Now we're running out of options on the quote unquote effective. But even if we have a PPO resistant population of, of pigweed in a field, we still get residual activity out of our PPO herbicide. So they can still be a part of the program from a residual standpoint. Uh, but metribuzin plays a big role in our soybean acres. Metribuzin paired with a group 15 herbicide uh, that has peroxisulfone in it specifically 
uh, is one of the mainstays for us uh, as far as a general recommendation in soybean. Now, you know, you go to cotton, you, you different herbicides are going to work uh, in those recommendations based on the crop we're talking about. But the idea is we're not just using one product anymore. We're using two modes of action. Hopefully those are effective modes of action that we're using and we're increasing our residual control. Uh, that way we're reducing the amount we have to uh, control from a post-emergence standpoint because we're losing the game post-emergence. And that's just about in any crop that we deal with right now in our state. If the weeds, if the pigweed, the barnyard grass comes up, that's when we really have to break the checkbook out and start spending money to to uh, get it under control. Yeah, and that's I think all of our listeners are pretty well aware of the importance of this process, which is why this interview is timely, just to bring it back to the forefront of their minds as they continue to plan out this year's growing year as far as that's concerned. Did we miss anything that you want to cover before we send you out? Well, I, I don't think we missed anything. I would just say that, you know, Cover crops for us and pigweed have uh, really helped us get above the bell curve and far as far as reducing the amount of population. And when we when we combine a cover crop with a pre-emerge herbicide, uh, that really sets us off on a on a good level playing field for pigweed control and other weeds as well. And so I think that uh, as we move forward. Although the cover cropping in the South is not that popular, I think we're going to see those practices. I think we're going to be forced, quite honestly, to start moving towards these more cultural methods for control just because of the lack of chemistry that we're going to have in the next four or five years due to resistance. I appreciate that insight. And if our listeners want to reach out to you or follow what you guys are doing as far as studies goes, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, so uh, our website is uh, uada.uaex.edu. That's our extension website. Uh, Dr. Tommy Butts and myself have a Weeds Are Wild podcast series that we put out every week. Uh, that also includes Dr. Jason Norsworthy uh, with some rice recommendations on there. And so we put that out weekly. Um, and so that would be probably the best way to keep up with what we're doing because we just provide kind of a weekly update what's going on and general recommendations, you know, for that point in time of the season. And like uh, those usually come out during the middle of the week. But it's the uh, Weeds Are Wild podcast series on uh, Arkansas Row Crops Radio. That is great. And thanks again, Dr. Tom Barber, that you spent some time with us here. Our listeners certainly appreciate that. And we appreciate it, too. OK, thank you all. That was a fitting conversation for today after reporting on a lot of news around insects and wild animals. We now also have some advice on the weed side. So thanks to them for taking some time to have that conversation with us today. Absolutely, Tanner. Well, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.